you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one under your chair or the chair of someone next to you. So you can just grab that. 1 Peter chapter 4 is on page 1016 in the Bibles under your chairs. If you don't own a Bible, please just go ahead and take that one home with you. That's our, our gift to you. Throughout my five years of full-time pastoral ministry, without question, the sin that I have struggled with most has been anxiety. There's no question about it. The Bible says to be anxious for nothing, but in the last five years, I can honestly tell you that I've been anxious for just about everything. See, the reality is that uh, my, for me, anxiety, which is, is a sin, where to be anxious for nothing, uh, flows from deep insecurity. And I've constantly longed for my performance as a pastor or as a husband or now as a father to tell me who I am. And so I've, I've struggled over these last five years with uh, the constant temptation to be anxious. And so I've, I've tried in, in an effort to put off anxiety, I've tried to learn as much as I can uh, about anxiety sort of from a biblical perspective. And one of the key insights that I've learned as I've, I've sought to just kind of study what the Bible says about anxiety comes from uh, a book called Running Scared by an author named Ed Welch. And what he says about anxiety is very simple, but it's actually deeply profound uh, as you kind of plumb the depths of it. He says that anxiety's preferred time zone is the future. This is his quote. He says, fear can be triggered by the past. It can react to crises in the present or anticipate them in the future. Its preferred time zone, however, is the future. Dread, panic, nervousness, worry, and anxiety all speak of our potential future vulnerability. Whether you're here and you've been following Jesus for a long time or you're just sort of checking this Christianity thing out because a really good-looking person brought you with them, you know, you know the reality of this. Anxiety's preferred time zone is the future. I mean, just think about the last time you were anxious. What were you doing? Holding up future possible contingencies and then running them through the worst possible way they could go. Now, popular psychology would tell you that the way then to unravel anxiety, since anxiety lives in the future, is to do what? Is to think more positively about the future that's coming. And now there's some truth to that, right? Because we've been in 1 Peter, and one of the chief commands in 1 Peter is to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, when Jesus returns. So there's some truth in think more positively about the future. It's just that way, 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 way off future, maybe tomorrow. But in this body and life, while we're still here, until Jesus returns, thinking more positively about the like close future, well, there's, first Peter would tell us there's one key reason why that just won't work. It just won't work 
to think more positively about the future, you know, since anxiety lives in the future. And here, here's the reason that First Peter would give us why that just won't work. It's unrealistic. It's just flat out unrealistic. Listen to 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What Peter's getting at here is the reason it's so unrealistic to simply think more positively, like, yeah, suffering's not coming, the, the future's gonna be excellent, it's all gonna be puppies and candy canes and wonderful, everything's just gonna be beautiful. Peter's saying, look, if you're a follower of Jesus, don't you remember what it was like for him? He suffered deeply. The righteous one actually suffered to the point of death to bring the unrighteous, us, to God. If Jesus suffered and you follow him, why would you think it'd be any different for you? It's so unrealistic. I mean, truly, many of you in this room are young. By God's grace, less of you are young than a couple years ago. Okay, so God bless those of you who are here and over the age of 30. I've been praying for you at least once a week for the last several years. You're the answer to my prayers. Please don't leave. I love you. Okay, now let's back that up. I, I pray for the rest of you too. Like if you're like 28, he doesn't pray for me? No, no, really, I do. I do. Pray for you too. But here's the reality that Peter's getting at especially for those of us who are young. He's saying, don't believe that crazy idea out there that if you just eat a paleo diet and exercise regularly and max out your matching fund, matching for those of you who are still in school is this thing where you start, they, they start paying you. It's this crazy thing when you get a job. And um, after you send off your check to pay off the, the school, uh, they, they will actually match sometimes, you know, up to a couple percentages for you to put away money for your retirement. Please don't believe that if you max out that matching and you eat a paleo diet and you get your exercise together, that suddenly you're going to be immune to suffering. What Peter here is saying is Jesus suffered and he is the Lord of the universe and you follow him. Why would you think it would be any different? That's why just thinking more positive thoughts about the future, if it's not the like when Jesus returns future, is a bit unrealistic. Now, a couple of you might be saying, well, perfect, I'm not a follower of Jesus yet, and this is a horrible sell. You know, <laughs> I'm good. Well, here's the thing. If we've learned anything, though, from what's happened over the last couple days, it's that we live in a broken world. Whether you follow Jesus or not in this broken world, suffering trials will find you. So here's the question. How do we face a future that will inevitably hold trials of various kinds? How do we face such a future without being phony Oh, it's going to be great, it's going to be awesome, and nothing ever bad is going to happen to me. Or joyless. The future holds trials. What's the point? 
and you just kind of throw up your hands. You start to spiral downward. Some of you in this room, you're, that's where you're at today. How do you face a future that will hold trials without going to either of those places? Well, the answer is in that little phrase that Peter uses in verse 1 where he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. This is sort of like a military combat type of phrase. For those of you that have served in the military, you would never look to a future battle coming and just go, hmm, see what happens. No, what would you do? You'd arm yourself. You would arm yourself for the future that's coming. Here's what Peter is saying. It's the big idea of the passage this morning, the big idea that he's going to unpack. How are you going to face a future that most assuredly holds trials of various kinds without becoming either joyless or phony? Prepare yourself. Prepare for your future. That's what he means when he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Prepare. Prepare yourself. Now, of course, then the question is how? How does one prepare themselves without becoming that person who's just constantly doomsday? Like, oh, well, trials are coming. Let's just constantly think about the trials. Interestingly, this passage gives us two keys to preparing for a future. You're welcome. I'm a pastor. I normally have three. Today, only two. Two keys to prepare for a future that will inevitably hold some suffering. The high highs, yes, but also some suffering. Well, we take our cue from Jesus in this passage. The two keys for preparing for your future, live for God, live for people. Live for God, live for people. First Peter 4, we'll read, we'll make our way through verses 1 to 7 in this category of live for God. It says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. He's saying, think about your life and about your trials the same way Jesus did. How was it that Jesus was able to know that the cross was coming? Can you imagine knowing that crucifixion is coming and not becoming bitter, phony, or joyless? How did he do it? In John 6, 38, he Jesus gives us the clue. He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus prepared for trials, prepared to endure them, even lived in the midst of them by saying, No matter what comes my way, no matter what difficulties, what these trials may look like, I will live for God. I will live for His glory and renown, not my comfort. Live for God. It's the first key to preparing for your future. Now, if you're anything like me, when you read something like that, you go, wait, can you please back up and tell me how living for God is actually going to help me endure trials? How's that work? Well, He's going to give us a, a few ways that actually living for God helps prepare you for trials or helps you endure in the midst of them now. So let's keep reading in 1 Peter 4, 
verse 20. So he's talked about arm yourself with the same way of thinking. And then he says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Live for the will of God. The first reason why living for God helps prepare you for the future is this. When you live for God, you're no longer your own ultimate priority. Your comfort is no longer your own ultimate priority. God is. That's what he means when he says that if you've suffered in the flesh, you've ceased from sin. It means you've made a decisive break from living for yourself. And you live for God. Let me try and make the connection this way. When you live for yourself, trials are devastating. When you live for yourself and your comfort, the removal of that comfort is absolutely devastating. But when you live for God, even when you lose everything, you don't lose him. So if you live for God now, you will have what you need when you lose everything then. Now he's going to go on and give us more, make more connections to how living for God helps prepare us to suffer well. He says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. There's a second connection here he's making. Living for God helps prepare you for suffering because when you live for God, you stop wasting your time with things that can't comfort you. When you live for God's glory and live for Him, you stop wasting your time with things that won't bring you ultimate and lasting comfort. You know, the reason that Peter brings up this string of sins is actually really simple if you think about it. Where do you go when trials hit? What sins, what pet sins do you indulge in when trials hit to try and get comfort? Peter points out kind of two. He's pointing out sex and alcohol. But where do you go? 10 hours more a week at work because that's where I get some validation. If I can just earn a little bit more, then maybe I'll feel a little bit more comfortable. Maybe it is just drinking too much. And I'll just kind of forget. Maybe it is sexual sin. Sex like alcohol is a gift, but they can be taken out of bounds and out of balance. I mean, how many of us in this room 
trials hit, you just run to pornography. Just run to sleeping with whatever random person you can meet at a party. I mean, some of us, it's much more subtle. We love gossip. Sometimes just nothing makes you feel better just for a moment than maligning someone else when you don't feel well, right? And what Peter is doing, he's bringing this up, he's saying, live for God because when you do, you will not waste your time with stuff that can't bring you any lasting comfort. Let's not, look, let's not be, let's not be ridiculous for a second. Sin does feel good. Okay, can we, can we just be honest with each other? There's a reason you and I so often run to sin when we need some comfort. It feels awesome for a moment or two. But it ends up being akin to drinking a cup of sand. Oh, the thirst is so much worse. It just can't deliver on the promise. And Peter's saying, why would you run back to things that can't comfort and actually bring God's judgment? He says, of course, if you abstain from some of those things, your friends will make fun of you, think you're different, like, why aren't you drinking so much? The heck's wrong with you? Oh, right, you follow Jesus, you're not very much fun anymore. By the way, please, follow Jesus and be fun. But Peter says, look, don't grow bitter when people do that. God will judge, so you don't have to. Instead, keep on moving toward your friends who even make fun of your new lifestyle as a follower of Jesus. Move toward them. Extend the gospel to them, that thing that gives life to the dead. See, Peter is saying, live for God because he's the true source of comfort. And in living for him, you'll say no to the things that promise comfort but always underdeliver. Just for you right here, like, what do you run to when you need comfort? It's what you'll run to when the big trials come. If you'll learn to depend not on yourself but the God who raises the dead in the small discomforts, you'll be prepared to lean on him when the truly devastating ones come. And I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer, but it, they will come. Don't go seeking them, they'll find you. He does give us a final little connection here between living for God and preparing for trials. It comes in verse 7. It says, the end of all things is at hand. Okay, we don't often like to talk about this or think like this because, you know, it makes you sound like one of those crazy religious people. But yes, it's true. Jesus is coming back. And his return is imminent, meaning it could happen at any time. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. There's something about knowing that Jesus can return at any time that really does sober you up about what's really important in life. And it makes you a bit more clear about your purpose 
That's the third connection he's making in this whole live for God in order to prepare for trials is that when you live for God, you're living for a purpose larger than comfort. When you're sobered up by the reality that Jesus could return at any time, you want your life to be maximized for kingdom impact. Now, I imagine when some of you hear that, maximize your life for kingdom impact, you're thinking, here it comes. I'm probably, he's going to tell me to quit my job. He's going to tell me to move to a place even more uncomfortable than Philadelphia. Here it comes. He's going to tell me to go on some mountaintop retreat, run away from the real world, which, which must be nice for him. He doesn't have a real job. <laughs> Notice what it says here. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. There's nothing you can do to maximize your impact quite like devoting yourself to prayer. Don't quit your job, most of you. Don't go running for the hills. Don't go looking up in the sky just waiting for Jesus to return. Martin Luther was once asked, you know, what... What would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back this afternoon? Pay my taxes, plant a tree. What did he mean? What he meant was that when you live for God, everything is meant to be worship. Here's a connection I'm trying to make. If you live for God and are sobered up by the idea that Jesus could return at any point, then the way that you can maximize your life for the kingdom is by devoting yourself to prayer in every aspect of your life. Don't quit your, your job. Instead, pray for the welfare of your company. Pray that just and good work would be done. Pray for your coworkers. Pray for open doors to invite them into your Christian community or bring your Christian community to them. Don't run off and pretend you're not married. Instead, Pray for your spouse that through your life they would see your good deeds and give glory to your God. Instead of separating yourself constantly from the things of this world, enter in and pray. Instead of, like for me, instead of getting busy and thinking, ah, better maybe not go to running club, which as a, a pastor is my only way of hanging out with non Christians. No, pray for your running club. Pray for them. If you live for God, well, let me say it this way. Trials are coming. For many of us, you're in it now. If you live for comfort, you'll never have it because your circumstances will never be always comfortable. If you live for God, the God that you've been brought to through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, well, then you will have the God of all comfort, even when life becomes deeply uncomfortable. Now, there's a second way that we prepare ourselves for trials. We won't talk about it at quite as much length, but it's, it's almost equally as critical. We prepare for trials by living for God and living for others. Let's jump in at verse 8. 
It says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received the gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion. Yes, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The second way that we prepare for trials is by living for others. You know, in the West, I I hate it when people say stuff like that. It sounds so pompous. In the West, let me tell you how you think. No, but really, let me tell you how you think. Um, If you've grown up in America, you are probably, like me, used to thinking about Christianity in very individualistic terms. And there's part of that that's really true, right? The gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to reconcile us to God. God's reconciling a people to himself through Christ. How are we reconciled? Through personal faith in him. That's the good news of the gospel. And it calls for an individual response. But throughout the New Testament, we realize that one of the central implications of that gospel is that we are family. You see, if you've been reconciled to God as a son or daughter, then everyone else who's been reconciled to God as a son or daughter has become your brother and sister. And the way we prepare for suffering that's coming is by living for one another in family, like family. Now, there's a reason, I think, why this section is here. One of the most tempting and counterproductive ways that many of us respond to seasons of trial is self-focus and isolation. It's one of those sins that always overpromises and underdelivers. But how many of you are like that? I'm in a little bit of a rough patch. I'm going to take the week off from Citigroup. Did it work? Uh, things are a bit nuts right now. I don't think I'm going to come on Sunday morning. Did that make it better? You alone with you. Sounds like a peach of an idea when you're in the midst of trials. Remember, you're the most influential preacher in your life. But when you're in the midst of trials, you better get another preacher because you're probably telling yourself a whole lot of bad news. Live for one another now. You won't isolate yourself then. Now, he gives us three concrete ways that we can live for one another. The first one is to love one another because love covers over a multitude of sins. Have you ever noticed, maybe I'm the only sadistic one in this room, that whenever you're going through a time of trials, you always want someone to blame and you become keenly aware of everybody else's faults. So you're going through a time of trials and all of a sudden you are like the most critical human being alive. Love one another. Keep moving toward one another, seeking the good of others, because when you love others, love covers over a multitude of sins. See, when you're in the midst of trials, every molehill feels like a mountain. I better confront that. They've hurt me. Here we go. Confrontation time. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Why don't you just sit on that 
Second way he tells us is to show hospitality. We live for others by showing hospitality, opening our lives up to one another. Now, this is interesting, showing hospitality without grumbling. So he's saying it's not as though I'm in a time of trials, things are really difficult. And if you're like me, you may be, you're in that. Okay, I'm going to open my home for somebody, but I really don't want to. No, he's saying, open that dang home and stop complaining about it. Don't have a home, go to somebody else's, bring someone with you, go out to eat, whatever. He's saying, open your life up to other people. In serving others, you will get your eyes off of yourself, which in the midst of trials can at times be the worst place for your eyes to be. And then thirdly, he tells us to serve others. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been given spiritual gifts because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And those spiritual gifts tend to fall into one of two categories. Serving gifts, you're more of a doer. Speaking gifts, you're more of a mouth. Mouth is one little tiny part, thank God. Then you got the rest. One of the best ways you can prepare yourself for trials is to use your gifts to build others up. So if you think, I think I'm a mouth, put that on your Connect card, right? There's a serving box, just check serve, mouth. I'll get in touch with you, I'll know what it means. We'll figure out how can we maybe apprentice you to be a city group leader so you can help teach others the scriptures or facilitate Bible discussions and prayer times, those kind of things. We'd love to do that. Maybe help you be trained to be like a lay biblical counselor. That'd be awesome. Maybe you're like, doer, great. There are a million things to be done both within and outside of our walls. Wonderful. Prepare yourself for the trials that come and experience the comfort that truly lasts in the midst of the ones you're in right now by living for God and others. Now, as we close, it says to do this in the strength that God supplies. The strength that God supplies is the gospel. Jesus, the righteous one, dying the death we unrighteous ones deserve to bring us to God. You can't live for God. I can't live for God. I can't live for others. Jesus had to live for God on my behalf and die for me, living for others, so that I could be reconciled to him. It's only through the gospel through realizing I bring nothing to this relationship with God and deserve only condemnation and he's put all my condemnation on Jesus. And so now, because Christ has been condemned, I can have the words of Romans 8, 1 ring over my life. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The righteous died for the unrighteous to bring me to God, so now I have him. He is the strength that supplies me for a lifetime of living for him and living for others. Please don't think of this in moralistic terms. I better go out and live for God and live for others. No, no, no. Come back to that glorious news. You can't live for God. You can't live for others. But Jesus has done it. Through faith in him, you've been reconciled to God and he will strengthen you now to do it. To live for him and to live for others.